So we are dealing with Samson. Now, for the past couple of weeks, we've been going over the book of Judges from the perspective of superheroes. And we have seen a lot of good, cool superhero stuff coming out of the book of Judges. Some people who are doing amazing feats, things that you wouldn't think a normal person could do. And as I've said time and time again, the story of the book of Judges is really one of a downward spiral of humanity. Let me just remind you of, again of how the cycle works. So God blesses his people and brings them into a promised land just absolutely tailored perfectly for them. But they reject God, they pursue other gods, they do their own thing, and so God allows a foreign adversary to come in and mess with them. Uh, either politically or economically or some other way, those foreign adversaries are messing with them. And so they finally cry out to God and say, God, no, we're coming back to you. We love you. We want to follow you. And so God sends a savior that we call a judge. Uh, Sometimes the book of Judges refers to them as a leader or a savior or a judge. Uh, They use a bunch of different terms for it, but it's the same basic idea. God sends them a rescuer who then liberates them from their oppressors, gives them a time of peace, without the oppressors, and then the whole cycle starts over again. They go back to the beginning, and they eventually forget about God. So far in the story, we've covered over 300 years of time, 350 or so years of time to see these various judges come in and do their thing, and then as a result of what's going on, they have peace until the people give up on God again, and he allows another oppressor to take over. We've seen it time and time again. And I've tried to reiterate to you that the people of Israel were always supposed to be a nation of heroes for the people around them. Remember, God said to Abraham, I will bless you and you will be a blessing. In other words, the nation of Israel was supposed to be a nation of blessing conduit. God would bless them, they would bless the people around them. But instead, The people of Israel turned into a nation that constantly needed to be saved. They were supposed to be heroes, but they ended up needing a hero. And so I've said to you time and time again through this journey that God made you to be a hero. And yet you and I need a hero all the time. Today is one of those days where we look at a very flawed individual. I told you last week that last week's judge was the second worst judge. Today we're going to be covering the guy I think is the worst judge. His name is Samson. Now maybe you've heard this story when you were a little kid. I'm not exactly sure if you went to Sunday school. I went to Sunday school when I was a kid. I also went to a Christian elementary school and a Christian high school and And so I experienced all the Christian stories, and one of the stories that was the strongest in my memory is the story of Samson, because of course, Samson never needed to get a haircut, and Samson was amazingly buff. And so I always thought Samson was a cool guy, because he was literally a biblical storybook hero. So I remember as a kid, I would learn the Samson story, and maybe you've heard the story, I'm going to narrate for you what I heard in my Sunday school classes. The Samson story goes like this. So God chose a guy named Samson and told him, don't ever cut your hair because you're going to be strong and I'm going to use you to save my people. And so Samson never cut his hair. 
And he became amazingly strong, did amazingly feats of, amazingly huge feats of strength. He fell in love with a woman, but before he fell in love with that woman, he proved that he was super powerful. He tore the gates off of a city and carried them on his back. He, uh, somehow caught 300 foxes and lit their tails on fire and sent them to uh, burn up the fields of the enemy. And at one point in time, he took a donkey's jawbone, which I liked because as a child, my church used the King James Version a lot. And so uh, anytime you see the Bible talking about a donkey, I always loved the King James Version of it because they would refer to the donkey as a jackass without using the jack at the beginning of it. And I just loved talking about how Samson would take the the bone. Anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it to your imaginations. But Samson took a bone from a donkey's mouth somehow and killed like a thousand people with it. And so you hear all these exploits. And then, of course, the pinnacle of the story is the story of Delilah, where Delilah, that evil woman, tricks Samson into giving away the secret of his strength, which is his hair. And so then the Philistines come and they cut off Samson's hair and he's no longer strong anymore. And they capture him. They gouge out his eyes, which as a kid was always both gross you know, repellent and also cool because I'm a, I'm a guy and so gross things are also cool. Anyway, so they gouge out his eyes. They carry him off to the Philistine temple and then in the Philistine temple, he prays and asks God for one more feat of strength and God does allow him to push down the pillars of the temple and the, the ceiling crashes down and all the Philistines die. Yay for Samson! What an amazing story of a superhero. There's only just a number of problems. Um... You see, even as a kid, I had questions. Wait a minute. So you're saying that his hair was magic? And that when he lost his hair, he lost his strength? That doesn't make any sense. The Bible doesn't have a lot of magical things. So what's that all about? And then also, wait a minute. You're saying that Samson, the strongest guy ever, was tricked by some woman into giving away the secret of his strength? A, was it really the secret of his strength? B, he was tricked by this woman. C, he killed himself. How is that victorious at the end? And so simultaneously, I was in an environment that wanted to portray the judges as these great people. While I, as a child, continued to ask the question about the judges that just a lot of things didn't seem to make sense. In point of fact, the older I got, the worse I felt about Samson. The more I read his story, the worse I feel about him. Just because I feel you need to, I'm going to read almost the entire story today. That's going to be the bulk of my message. But as we do, I want you to notice a couple things. One, Samson really is a bad guy. The title of the message today is One Bad Dude, and he was one bad dude in all the uses of the word bad. He really was a bad guy. And that's something that we shouldn't shy away from. But there is a tiny detail in the story that as a child I was never taught. Not because the people teaching me never taught it to me. They might have said it. But as a child, it went right over my head. Because as a child, I couldn't understand this particular detail. But as any teenager would be able to understand, as you and I are going to see, it's obvious today. There's a detail in the story that tells us the whole story. 
We'll get to that in just a little bit. So let's start off by finishing up what we need to finish up from the previous chapter. We left the previous chapter at verse 7, so let's go ahead and jump into verse 8 from chapter 12. It says, after Jephthah, the previous judge, there was Ibsen who led from Bethlehem who led Israel. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters. Again, I don't know why this guy has so many kids because that means he had to have lots of wives and God had clearly said that the leaders of, God, of his people were not supposed to have lots of wives. But whatever, he's got all these kids. And then it talks about uh, he gave his daughters away in marriage to those outside his clan and for his sons he brought in 30 young women as wives from outside his clan. Ibsen led Israel seven years. Then Ibsen died and was buried in Bethlehem. And you ask the question, what's the deal with this detail? Why do we get this detail? I don't have the time today to go into it. And frankly, just to be honest with you, I don't really know what the point of this detail is that he had so many kids and he sent away his daughters to other guys. And then he brought in other women for, instead of going to his own clan. I don't understand why that's a detail and why that's important. But one of these days, hopefully I'll get a chance to study it deeper and, and go into it and maybe learn. But look at verse 11. After him, Elon the Zebulonite led Israel 10 years. Then Elon died and was buried in Aijalon in the land of Zebulun. After him, Abdon, son of Hillel from Pirathon led Israel. He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 donkeys. He led Israel eight years. Then Abdon, son of Hillel, died and was buried in Pirathon in Ephraim in the hill country of the Amalekites. And the only thing you can get from these details is that, okay, fine. There were some guys who led Israel who were incredibly wealthy. At the very least, what you know of them is they are incredibly wealthy. And it doesn't say a single thing about the relationship between them and Israel or the relationship between them and God. It's just all silent. It's just a thing that happened to sort of move us along to the next part of the story, verse 13. I mean, chapter 13. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, so the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. This is what looks like the beginning of the cycle all over again. They had a time of relative peace, but then they forgot God. They did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now remember what I told you about this, the cycle. They forget God. God sends an oppressor. They remember God, reach out to God, pray for God, ask for a deliverer. He sends a deliverer. The deliverer rescues them from the oppressor, and then they have peace again until they give up on God. Today, this is the last judge, and I'm just going to let you know how the story goes. They give up on God. God sends a deliverer. That's it. Of the whole journey, of the whole cycle, only those two pieces remain. They give up on God. You never see them repent. You never see the judge bring peace. All you get is they give up on God and God sent a judge. It's the last one and we don't get a full cycle. We just get a tiny little bit of it. Look at this, verse 2. A certain man of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites had a wife who was childless, unable to give birth. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, now remember, the angel of the Lord, we've seen earlier in the book of Judges, we saw the angel of the Lord appear to Gideon, and when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, it seemed like the angel of the Lord and the Lord were the same thing. And so I concluded back then, just like a lot of other scholars have concluded throughout the years, that the angel of the Lord is a technical term for the messenger of God that we call Jesus. 
the second person of the Trinity who came down to earth in some sort of visible fashion at certain points in time in the Old Testament to give a special message to a special person for a special purpose. He was the Word made flesh. And here he shows up again. The angel of the Lord appears to this this woman. It doesn't even give us her name there. He says, you are barren and childless, but you are going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink and that you do not eat anything unclean. You will become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor because the boy is to be a Nazarite dedicated to God from the womb. He will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. I'm going to skip the rest of the chapter here, so I'll just narrate to you what happens. She goes back to her husband. She tells her husband she met a man from God or an angel. And the husband says, okay, I'll pray and ask for him to come again because A, he's a guy, he doesn't trust his wife. And so he says, I'm going to pray and ask for God to send the angel again. God actually does. He sends the angel again. The angel comes back. Manoah goes out to meet the angel. He says, okay, so you talked to my wife. The angel said, yes, I did. He says, so what am I supposed to do about this child? The angel says, I already told her what she's supposed to do. Just listen to her. And which, by the way, is another evidence from the entire book of Judge, Judges that the only people who do anything right in this story are the women. But anyway, so the angel says, just pay attention to the woman. The guy says, okay, I'll do a sacrifice for you. Wait here. The angel says, okay, I'll wait here. He goes, he gets a sacrifice. He makes a sacrifice. And then while the sacrifice is burning, the angel dissipates and disappears in the midst of the flames, almost exactly like what you see in the story of Gideon. So we know God is consistent in the way he's working with these people, but there are a couple things that I want to highlight for you from the first five verses that we just read. First of all, the thing you need to realize is that this plan is all God. All God. There is nothing about this plan that is human. There is nothing about this plan that is from human origin. Remember, they disobeyed God. Their next job is to repent and ask for deliverance, but they don't do that. Instead, God just shows up with a plan. And you need to recognize this, that this last judge is an evidence of God saying, I'm not going to wait around for you to get your act together. Instead, I'm just going to do my plan. This plan is all God. This woman is barren. She doesn't pray for a child. There are many other parts of the scripture where there's a barren woman and she prays for a child and God gives her a child. This woman is not praying for a child in this story. It's not part of the story. The people don't ask for God's deliverance. The woman doesn't ask for a child. All we get is God says, I'm going to do something. The plan is all God's. That's the first and foremost thing you need to realize. As part of the plan, he's going to do a miracle. The miracle is a barren woman will have a son. And the only reason I mention this is that it shows up time and time again all over the place. The barren woman is going to have a son. And it's fascinating because there's so many times in Scripture where a woman who can't have a son naturally is given a miraculous son, and then that son becomes a savior. It's like God has a pattern that he is setting up for the future when Jesus will show up. But there's a tiny little detail that I read. Uh, A number of English translations translate the end of verse 5 one way, but the modern version of the NIV that I just read to you translated it differently. So today I'm going to show you an 
a different version. This is from the New Living Translation. The older version of the NIV plus the ESV translate the end in the same way as this one. It says this, He will be dedicated to God as a Nazarite from birth. He will begin to rescue Israel from the Philistines. And that is important. Because up until this point in time, the judge's story is they fail God, God brings an oppressor, they repent, God brings a savior, and the savior delivers them from their enemies. This one's different. This one, they fail God. God doesn't hear any repentance. He brings an oppressor, but he doesn't hear any repentance. So he brings a judge, but this judge is not going to solve the problem. This judge is only going to begin solving the problem. Do you see that? He's only going to begin the deliverance from the Philistines. So this judge will begin the deliverance of the Philistines. Go ahead and write that down. He's not going to finish anything. He's just starting something. The plan is God's. It involves a miracle of a barren woman giving birth to a son. This man is going to begin the deliverance but not finish it. And then finally, there's this one. He will belong to God. That whole thing about him not being allowed to drink any fermented drink, that he is going to be a Nazarite, I want to show you what a Nazarite vow is. It's defined for us in the law of Moses. It's defined in the book of Numbers. We're going to look at it. Numbers chapter 6, verses 1 through 12 says this, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, If a man or woman wants to make a special vow, a vow of dedication to the Lord as a Nazarite, first of all, a Nazarite vow is a vow of dedication to the Lord. I am going to say, God, I belong to you and to you alone. Okay, so if I make that vow... What does that mean? What does it look like? It says they must abstain from wine and other fermented drink and must not drink vinegar made from wine or other fermented drink. They must not drink grape juice or eat grapes or raisins. Keep going. It says as long as they remain under their Nazarite vow, they must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine, not even the seeds or skins. Okay, so listen, God doesn't have a problem with grapes. He doesn't have a problem with wine. In fact, wine was used by Jesus at the Last Supper to remind the people that he was going to give his blood for them and the wine was going to be a symbol for them to use for all, the rest of all eternity to remember that moment when Jesus sacrifices his life. God doesn't have any problem with wine. He doesn't have any problem with grapes. He doesn't have any problem with other fermented drink. Notice it does say other fermented drink. There's just a bigger picture. If you have dedicated yourself to God, then you are saying, God, you are my only authority. Nothing else will control me. And so if nothing else will control me, I can't even allow a chemical that could possibly control me. So I'm not going to drink any fermented drink because that chemical... As soon as it gets into my brain, it controls me just a little bit. And the more I get, the more it controls me. But I'm not going to let any of that fermented drink get into me because that's going to influence me a little bit. And God, I only want you to control me. And so there's that one. But then the the vinegar thing, well, there might still be some alcohol left in the vinegar and I want to avoid that too. And then the grape thing, well, sometimes a grape that's just left around for a while, especially a raisin that's been dried in the sun, could have developed some sort of fermentation on the inside of it that you don't even know but it's there nonetheless. And so he's like, don't even do the appearance of this. This is key. 
You're going to see throughout this that there is a dedication to God. There is a relationship I have with God in my heart. I'm not going to let anything else control me. And there's a visible aspect to it. I'm not even going to touch a grapevine. No one should see me near a grape because I don't want anyone to see that my vow doesn't matter to me. My vow matters, so I live it and I look it, okay? He then says, during the entire period of their Nazarite vow, no razor may be used on their head. Now, God doesn't have a problem with hair. He designed it. He came up with it. He invented it. Hair is on every single thing on the planet, basically, that lives. Even plants have versions of hair. Even insects have versions of hair. God isn't opposed to hair. Why would he say, don't use a razor on your head? Because everybody else is cutting their hair and the people who are devoted to God have said, God, you and you alone are my authority and so I want to live like you're my authority and I want the world to see it. There's a thing that I do and there's a thing that I represent. So there's a visible symbol of my dedication to God in this haircut thing. It says they must be holy until the period of their dedication to the Lord is over. They must let their hair grow long. Throughout the period of their dedication to the Lord, the Nazarite must not go near a dead body. Keep going. He says even if their own father or mother or brother or sister dies, they must not make themselves ceremonially unclean on account of them because the symbol of their dedication to God is on their head. Again, The hair is a symbol of their dedication to God. God doesn't have a problem with dead things. God, see, he invented the process of death and decay, even though humans are the ones who brought it into the world. You know, God wanted to have a world that humans would never die. He wanted that. That's the way he originally created it. And that's the way it will eventually be, because God always gets what he wants, even if he allows human beings to mess up the middle. So that is going to happen. A a world where humans don't die is going to happen. And Adam and Eve were not supposed to die. But nonetheless, the processes and procedures that God invented in this world are the ones that decay a dead body. They're the same ones that ferment grapes, did you know? He says, you're not going to touch a dead body. Keep going. He says, Throughout the period of their dedication, they're consecrated to the Lord. If someone dies suddenly in the Nazarite's presence, thus defiling the hair that symbolizes their dedication. Let's just clarify this really, really clearly. The hair does nothing. The hair is a symbol of their dedication. In other words, the hair is the visible thing that you can see that tells us of the inner thing that's going on. The inner thing is their dedication to God. The inner thing is their avoidance of anything that might control them. The inner thing is wanting to remain ceremonially clean before God, always ready to worship. Because when you touch something dead, that makes you ceremonially unclean. You were not allowed to worship at the temple or the tabernacle. And so that's why the, this regulation is in there too. But anyway, let's just keep going. If someone dies suddenly, something has to happen. It's not your fault. They died. They were in your presence. But because you were in the presence of a dead person, now you have been defiled. Your hair has been defiled. What do you do about it? They must shave their head on the seventh day, okay? So your hair used to be a symbol of your dedication, but now it's been in the presence of a dead body, so get rid of it. 
shave it. Then on the eighth day, they must bring two doves or two young pigeons to the priest at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Keep going. The priest is to offer one as a sin offering and the other as a burnt offering to make atonement for the Nazarite because they sinned by being in the presence of the dead body. This is interesting. The Nazarite didn't do anything. They was just standing there when someone else died. But the Nazarite is guilty of sin. This is something you have to realize. Sin doesn't mean you chose to do something. Sin means something God wanted to happen happened in a different way. Sin means something God didn't want to happen happened anyway. Sin means something God didn't want to happen happened. Sin means you missed. And if you were in the presence, if you were in Nazarite and you were in the presence of a dead body, it didn't matter how the circumstances were. That's a sin. By being in the presence of the dead body, that same day they're to consecrate their head again. Keep going. They must rededicate themselves to the Lord for the same period of dedication, must bring a year-old male lamb as a guilt offering. The previous days do not count because they became defiled during their period of dedication. This vow was supposed to be a temporary vow. You start it, you end it. But God says, if in the middle of that vow, something happens to ruin the vow, you start it over again. With Samson, the story is a little bit different. You see, Samson was supposed to be dedicated as a Nazarite from birth. That meant for him, it began, but it was never supposed to end. Nevertheless, if it ever did end, God gave a procedure for starting over. He gave a procedure for starting over. So let me just summarize it. I'll put it up in a quick chart for you. The Nazarite vow says nothing fermented. God's the only one in control. No haircuts. Everybody needs to see that I'm different. I'm set apart for God and I'm not letting anything else affect me or control me, not even to cut my hair. No touching dead things. I'm not going to be near anything that makes me unable to go to God. I want to be able to go to God at all moments, any point in time. And so if I get unclean from some sort of event, then I have to start all over. And if the vow is ruined, shave, sacrifice, and start again. Okay. I had to cover that because you need to know what a Nazarite is so you can see why Samson fails. Let's jump into the Samson story proper, beginning in chapter 14. Samson went down to Timnah and saw there a young Philistine woman. When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I've seen a Philistine woman in Timnah, now get her for me as my wife. He hasn't talked to her, as you'll see. He hasn't spoken to her. He doesn't know her name. He just says, I saw this girl. She's pretty. His father and mother replied, isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among all our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? The Philistines are our enemies. But Samson said to his father, get her for me. She's the right one for me. Oh, talking to a teenager who's in love is just the worst Oh, but dad, she's the right one for me. Oh, but she's the thing that I've always dreamed of. Oh, this, that, the other thing. It's so amazing. But look at the last line. And this is the detail I promised to you at the very beginning of the message. This detail is the whole story. Are you ready? Here it is. Verse 4. His parents did not know that this was from the Lord, who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines For at that time they were ruling over Israel. Samson sees a woman who's not part of the Israelites and he wants her, lusts for her. That is wrong. Samson goes to his parents 
and commands his parents to go get that girl for him. That is wrong. Samson's parents say, but Samson, why should you marry a Philistine? There are enemies. They were right. But the thing they didn't realize is that God has a bigger plan. And God had a plan to create a confrontation with the Philistines. He had a strategy. And the best we can just, I mean, simplify it as is God is working his plan. And in this whole story, that's what you'll see. From this point forward, you're going to see Samson be a bad man. You're going to see people around him trying to do something good. But all along, you're going to see God working his plan to bring a confrontation with the Philistines. Not to bring the deliverance, but to start the deliverance by initiating a confrontation. Keep going, verse 5. Samson went down to Timnah together with his father and mother as they approached the vineyards of Timnah. Why would the writer mention the vineyards? Interesting. Because Samson was a person who was supposed to avoid vineyards. Why would the writer mention the vineyards? Anyway, as they approached the vineyards of Timnah, suddenly a young lion came roaring toward him. Him. Wasn't he with his father and mother? In verse 5, he was with his father and mother. They were going down to Timnah together with his father and mother, but the lion is coming roaring towards him. Verse 6, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat. By the way, I've never been able to tear apart a young goat with my bare hands. So the fact that he can tear apart a lion like you might tear apart a young goat is just double good, double amazing, double superhero work. But he's touching a lion. He's now touching a dead lion. With his bare hands. But he told neither his father nor his mother what he had done. Wait a minute. He was with them. They were together with him. So how does the lion come after only him? How does he tear apart the lion with his bare hands? How does he come back to his mother and father and not tell them about what went down? Somehow, he must have been away from his mom and dad for a fairly significant amount of time near the vineyards of Timnah. Then he went down and talked to the woman, and he liked her. Oh, that's, that's fine. That's nice. There's something about that story that's just mysterious. Just a couple things that you're like, what? Something doesn't seem right. Skip ahead, verse 8. Some time later, when he went back to marry her, he turned aside to look at the lion's carcass. Okay, there we go. He's now going back there, and he turned aside, which means he had to intentionally go away from the path to go to where the lion's carcass was, which means earlier he had turned aside from the path his mother, mother and father were on. They were on the path, but he had turned aside from that path to encounter the lion in the first place. So now he's turned aside again to look at the lion's carcass, and in it he saw a swarm of bees and some honey. He scooped out the honey with his hands from a dead animal and ate as he went along. When he rejoined his parents, do you see that? 
When he rejoined his parents, he gave them some and they too ate it, but he did not tell them that he had taken the honey from the lion's carcass. Now we get a bigger picture. On the path to Timnah, there are some vineyards. At some point in time, near the vineyards, Samson leaves his parents on the path, goes out there into the middle of the vineyards. Why is a Nazarite going into the middle of the vineyards? I don't know. A lion attacks him while he's out there. He kills the lion. Now he's, he's double committed a problem with his Nazarite vow. He is in the middle of the grapes. He has killed an animal. It's not a clean animal, by the way. And so now he is unclean in two different ways. He has violated his vow in two different ways, and he knows he's violated his vow because when he comes back to his parents, he doesn't say anything, even though he does give them some honey. But he doesn't tell them about the dead thing he touched. He doesn't tell them it was in the middle of the vineyards or near the vineyards or whatever it was. Because you see, Samson still had his hair. And because he had his hair, Samson looked the part. But he was no longer honorable if he ever was. Samson had the hair, but he didn't have any of the rest of the dedication. The hair was supposed to be a symbol of your dedication to God, but for Samson, that's all it was. It was just hair. Now, what's interesting is that you might say, well, the command, you know, that God gave was really a command to not touch a dead human, wasn't it? And as a matter of fact, no, the command was not to touch any dead thing. Um, I skipped over it earlier. I was thinking about taking you into Leviticus chapter 5, but I'll just tell you, in Leviticus chapter 5, it basically says that anytime you touch a dead thing, if the dead thing is a consecrated animal, then you can stay clean. But if the dead thing is not a consecrated animal, like, oh, I don't know, let's say a lion, then you can't stay clean, and therefore you're ceremonially unclean, and therefore you have voided your vow. So if his vow is broken, makes you wonder, is God going to give up on him? Well, strangely enough, it was the Spirit of the Lord that helped him kill the lion. It's an interesting thing going on here. Let's just keep going. Um, verse, four, verse 10 of chapter 14. Now his father went down to see the woman, and there Samson held a feast, as was customary for young men. When the people saw him, they chose 30 men to be his companions. Let me tell you a riddle, Samson said to them. If you can give me the answer within seven days of the feast, I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 sets of clothes. If you can't tell me the answer, you must give me 30 linen garments and 30 sets of clothes. Tell us your riddle, they said. Let's hear it. He replied, out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. Which is just kind of cool that it rhymes in English, even though we translate it from Hebrew. In Hebrew, an interesting word that does rhyme is the word lion rhymes with the word honey. But I'm not going to get into that. He might have used something like that in this riddle here. But at least, you know, anyway, for three days, he could not, they could not give the answer. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, coax your husband into explaining the riddle for us or we will burn you and your father's household to death. What? Did you invite us here to steal our property? Then Samson's wife threw herself on him, sobbing. You hate me. You don't really love me. You've given my people a riddle, but you haven't told me the answer. I haven't even explained it to my father or mother, he replied. So why should I explain it to you? She cried the whole seven days of the feast. So on the seventh day, he finally told her because she continued to press him. She in turn explained the riddle to her people. 
Before sunset on the seventh day, the men of the town said to him, What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? Samson said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you have not solved my riddle. That is not a sexual reference. That is not the claim that they had somehow violated this woman. Instead, that is a statement that plowing a field is done with a bull, not a heifer. They did something that was outside of the rules. They did something that was outside of the scope of the game. Because you don't plow with a heifer, you plow with a bull. So if you use a heifer, and if you steal someone else's heifer to plow your fields, you are violating the rules of the game, basically. That's what he's saying. You wouldn't have solved my riddle if you hadn't cheated. Then the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. Again, the Spirit of the Lord comes on Samson, and he does something strong. The Spirit came on him with the lion. Now the Spirit comes on him, and he's going to do something else involving strength. He went down to Ashkelon, struck down 30 of their men, stripped them of everything, and gave their clothes to those who had explained the riddle. Burning with anger, he returned to his father's home, and Samson's wife was given to one of his companions who had attended him at the feast. Samson is so angry, so upset, so vengeful that they cheated that he is going to cheat also. Instead of giving them his own stuff, instead of buying stuff for them, he is going to steal it from the Philistines. But not just steal it from the Philistines, he's going to murder 30 Philistines who had nothing to do with any of this to steal their clothes and bring it back to these guys. Sounds like an incredibly honorable man to me. And still, it was the Holy Spirit's power that gave him the strength to do so. 30 people are dead. Move on to chapter 15, verse 1. Later on, at the time of wheat harvest, Samson took a young goat and went to visit his wife. He said, I'm going to my wife's room. Apparently there was a thing going on back in those days called a visiting marriage where you could be technically married to a person, but that woman would stay living in her father's household and you would just make periodic visits, bringing a gift to the family to have a, a, a moment with your wife and then you would go home and That might have been what he thought he was doing here. But anyway, the father would not let him go in. I was so sure you hated her, he said, that I gave her to your companion. Isn't her younger sister more attractive? Take her instead. It's not that honorable of a dad. But anyway, so Samson said to them, this time I have a right to get even with the Philistines. I will really harm them. Pause for just a moment. Evaluate with me on this. Does he have a right to punish the Philistines because he walked away from his marriage and when he came back she was married to someone else? Does he have a right to feel vengeful about this? Does anyone have a right of vengeance when God is still on his throne? Anyway, he says, this time I have a right to get even with the Philistines. I will really harm them. So he went out and caught 300 foxes and tied them tail to tail in pairs. He then fastened a torch to every pair of tails, lit the torches, and let the foxes loose in the standing grain of the Philistines. He burned up the shocks and standing grain together with the vineyards and olive groves. He's just destroying their fields. When the Philistines asked who did this, they were told Samson, the Timnite's son-in-law, because his wife was given to his companion. So the Philistines went up and burned her and her father to death. Samson said to them, since you've acted like this, I swear that I won't stop until I get my revenge on you. 
He attacked them viciously and slaughtered many of them. Then he went down and stayed in a cave in the rock of Edom. So the Philistines retaliate against him. The Philistines went up and camped in Judah, spreading out near Lehi. The people of Judah asked, why have you come to fight us? We've come to take Samson prisoner, they answered, to do to him as he did to us. Then 3,000 men from Judah went down to the cave in the rock of Edom and said to Samson, don't you realize that the Philistines are rulers over us? What have you done to us? He answered, I merely did to them what they did to me. You've heard those words? Like just a couple verses before? You know, anyway, I merely did to them what they did to me. They said to him, we've come to tie you up and hand you over to the Philistines. Samson said, swear to me that you won't kill me yourselves. Agreed, they answered. We will only tie you up and hand you over to them. We will not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and led him from the rock. As he approached Lehi, the Philistines came toward him shouting, the spirit of the Lord, again, came powerfully upon him. The ropes on his arms became like charred flax and the bindings dropped from his hands. Finding a fresh jawbone of a donkey, he grabbed it and struck down a thousand men. Then Samson said, with a donkey's jawbone, I've made donkeys of them. With a donkey's jawbone, I've killed a thousand men. When he finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone and the place was called Ramath Lehi. Holy cow. The only thing you see here is vengeance, right? The only thing you see here is vengeance. You wronged me, I'm going to wrong you worse. You wronged us, so I'm going to wrong you worse. Back and forth and back and forth. Just vengeance, 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 vengeance. And yet in the midst of it, you see it over and over again. The Spirit of the Lord came on Samson to give him the strength to do this vengeful thing. Skip ahead to verse 20. It says, Samson led Israel for 20 years in the days of the Philistines. I won't, one thing you need to notice here. Whose days are they? They're the days of the Philistines. See, Samson never brings deliverance. All he does is brings problem. He brings problem, 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 problem. He doesn't bring deliverance. He brings problem, problem, problem. And he spends 20 years leading Israel. But it's still the days of the Philistines. So even though he's their leader judge, he's not delivered them. He's just beginning something. And then just as a sidebar, look at the verses above and below verse 20. Above verse 20, verse 18, it says, Because he was very thirsty, he cried out to the Lord, You've given your servant this great victory. Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of uncircumcised? Then God opened up the hollow place of Lehi, and water came out of it. When Samson drank, his strength returned, and he revived. So the spring was called En-Hakore, and it is still there in Lehi. Samson cries out to God, whining, God, why am I so thirsty? And God does a miracle and gives him water out of a rock. Skip ahead, verse 1 of chapter 16. One day... Samson went to Gaza where he saw a prostitute. He went in to spend the night with her. The people of Gaza were told, Samson's here. So they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the city gate. They made no move during the night, saying, at dawn we'll kill him. But Samson lay there only until the middle of the night. Then he got up and took hold of the doors of the city gate, together with the two posts, and tore them loose, bar and all. He lifted them to his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. And you'll notice in that thing, none of the Philistines die. No battle is fought. It's just him doing a thing. 
doing a thing that he can do because he's super strong. Tearing the doors off of the gate and going up to the top of the mountain. I'm assuming just dropping him there to say, ha, see what I did? These two little sidebar stories don't advance the plot at all, but they tell us one thing. Samson is a bad guy. He's a whiny guy when it comes to his relationship with God. And he is a sexual exploiter visiting a prostitute. And then he's a vandal tearing off the the gates of their city. He wasn't defending himself in the process. He just was being mean. But no matter how bad Samson was, God kept working. Where does Samson's great strength come from? Not his hair, from the Spirit. Where did the water come from? Not from a spring, from a rock. No matter how bad Samson was, God was still working with him. God was still doing a plan. Let's finish it up. Because now we get to the famous part of the story, Samson and Delilah. Here we go. Verse 4. It says this. Sometime later, he fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorek whose name was Delilah. The rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, see if you can lure him into showing you the secret of his great strength and how we can overpower him so we may tie him up and subdue him. Each one of us will give you 1,100 shekels of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, tell me the secret of your great strength and how you can be tied up and subdued. Which, by the way, whenever someone asks you that question, don't give them the answer. Because usually when someone says, how can I kidnap you? they are going to kidnap you. Usually when someone says, tell me how I can really make you mad, they are going to make you mad. Usually when someone says, give me the secret of your biggest problem, they're usually going to leverage that against you. And of course, she is going to do that. But I don't want to blame Delilah because she's being bribed with a whole lot of money. What I do want to blame is Samson for being so incredibly obtuse. Now he thinks he's playing a game. Verse 7, Samson answered her, If anyone ties me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, I'll become as weak as any other man. Then the rulers of the Philistines brought her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she tied him with them. With men hidden in the room, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the bowstrings as easily as a piece of string snaps when it comes to a flame. So the secret of his strength was not discovered. Then Delilah said to Samson, You've made a fool of me. You lied to me. Come now, tell me how you can be tied. He said, If anyone ties me securely with new ropes that have never been used, I'll become as weak as any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and tied him with them. Then with men hidden in the room, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the ropes of his arms off his arms as if they were threads. Delilah then said to Samson, All this time you've been making a fool of me and lying to me. Tell me how you can be tied. He replied, If you weave the seven braids of my head into the fabric, Ooh, we're getting a little close. If you mess with my hair in a specific way, weave it into the fabric on the loom and tighten it with the pin, I'll become as weak as any other man. So while he was sleeping, Delilah took the seven braids of his head, wove them into fabric and tightened it with the pin. Again, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and pulled up the pin and the loom with the fabric. At this point in time, Do you think whatever he tells her, she is going to do? Duh. Do you think he knows that whatever he tells her, she is going to do? You would have to be the world's dumbest person 
to not have picked up on this pattern so far. I do not think Samson is the world's dumbest person. But either he's dumb or he's evil. Let me show you. Then she said to him, How can you say I love you when you won't confide in me? This is the third time you've made a fool of me and haven't told me the secret of your great strength. With such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was sick to death of it. So he told her everything. No razor has ever been used on my head, he said, because I've been a Nazarite dedicated to God from my mother's womb. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me and I would become as weak as any other man. What does he think she's going to do? If he's dumb, he thinks, well, she's not going to cut my hair. If he's evil, he thinks she is going to cut my hair and it won't make a difference. Because at this point in his life, it's not his hair. It's never been his hair. It's never been his hair that gave him his strength. The hair was just a symbol of what it was supposed to be happening in his heart. It was the spirit that gave him strength. The hair was nothing. And at this point in time, he's begun to realize that the hair is nothing. But instead, instead of realizing that it was the Holy Spirit who was everything, he thought it was Samson who was everything. And so what if she cuts off my hair? I still got my biceps. When Delilah saw that he had told her everything, she sent word to the rulers of the Philistines, come back once more. He's told me everything. So the rulers of the Philistines returned with the silver in their hands. After putting him to sleep on her lap, she called for someone to shave off the seven braids of his hair and so began to subdue him and his strength left him. Then she called, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He woke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. It wasn't that his hair had left him. It's that the Lord had left him. Verse 21, Then the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes, and took him down to Gaza, binding him with bronze shackles. They set him to grinding grain in the prison. But the hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Verse 22 is an interesting verse. Because verse 22 is supposed to remind us of the Nazarite vow. What happens when the vow gets broken? Shave, sacrifice, start over. And that little verse there is saying God left him, but he hasn't left him permanently. See, no matter how bad Samson is, God still has a plan for Samson and with Samson. Let's finish it up. Verse 23. Now the rulers of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to celebrate, saying, Our God has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. When the people saw him, they praised their God, saying, Our God has delivered our enemy into our hands, the one who laid waste our land and multiplied our slain. While they were high in high spirits, they shouted, Bring out Samson to entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he performed for them. How do you perform for them? Well, he must have been performing with feats of strength, right? Which means he still had strength, right? 
He was pushing grain, right? He was, he was doing the millstone thing. So Samson had never really be, been that weak. He just had not had the Holy Spirit's power strengthening his strong body. And so he's going to perform for them, apparently feats of strength. When they stood him among the pillars, Samson said to the servant who held his hand, put me where I can feel the pillars that support the temple so that I may lean against them. Now the temple was crowded with men and women. All the rulers of the Philistines were there. And on the roof were about 3,000 men and women watching Samson perform. He killed 30 men. Then he killed 1,000 people. Then he had 20 years. We don't know what he did during those 20 years. And now there are all of the leaders of the Philistines plus 3,000 men and women on the roof. This is an amazing temple that they're in. Then Samson prayed to the Lord for the first time in his life. Did you notice that? This is the first time Samson has uttered the words, Lord. This is the first time Samson has prayed. He prays. Sovereign Lord, remember me, please, God, strengthen me just once more. And let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines from my two eyes. And my heart is broken. Do you know why? Because the only motivation he has at the end is revenge. The only motivation he has at the end of this story is just revenge. God, they took my eyes. Let me kill them all. See what happens. Then Samson reached towards the two central pillars on which the temple stood Bracing himself against them, his right hand on the one, his left hand on the other, Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. They took my eyes, so let's all die. To me, that sounds like depression. But nonetheless, then he pushed with all his might, and down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. Thus he killed many more when he died than while he lived. Then his brothers and his father's whole family went down to get him. They brought him back and buried him between Zorah and Eshtol. In the tomb of Manoah, his father, he had led Israel 20 years. You should have seen the obvious in the story. Samson is a bad guy. There is nothing in his story that is honorable from him. Not one moment in Samson's life does he do something that's honorable except briefly for the slightest moment when he prays to the Lord and he says, Lord, remember me again, please. But then he immediately shifts off of that to vengeance. I am going to avenge my eyeballs I'm not going to care for my neighbors. I'm not going to care for the Israelites. I'm not going to deliver the other people from the oppression of the Philistines. I'm not going to stand up for God's honor instead of Dagon's honor. It's not, Lord, let me kill all of them because they're worshiping the wrong God and you're the only right God. It's none of this stuff. There's nothing about Samson's life, not one single moment that is honorable. But God gave him power. God chose to give him power. More power than any of the other judges had ever had. And so let me just give you the hard and fast truth. God gave power to a bad man because God had a bigger plan. You know what? 
I don't like Samson. He kind of disgusts me, repulses me in a lot of ways. You know, and if I, I, I try to avoid general political talk and stuff, every now and then I say something that gets me in trouble. But this is November, this week, this is the vote, and some of you are thinking about voting, and, and I'm not going to tell you who to vote for. I, I just want to talk a little bit about this one thing, that God put Samson in his place where he was. God chose a bad man and continued to give him power because God had a bigger plan. That's the whole point of the story. Does that mean that Samson gets a pass? Does that mean that now, because we know God chose Samson, that we should support Samson? Well, actually, his parents didn't support him. Did you remember? His parents opposed his decision to go after that girl in Timnah. His nation didn't support him. Judah, do you remember? They tied him up and gave him to the Philistines because they were sick and tired of what he was doing. So the people of his country didn't support him. The, his family didn't support him. Do I have to support a bad person because that person is accomplishing something for God's plan? The answer is no. In fact, if Samson were running for our presidency, if a person like Samson, a person who was a womanizer, a person who would hang out with prostitutes, a person who would violate all modes of decorum just because it benefits himself, if there were a person like Samson who was running for the presidency in our world, a person who always was motivated by revenge, always motivated by whatever made him feel powerful and strong, a person, if there was ever a person who had the appearance of doing good all the while missing all the heart of doing good. If we ever had a person like Samson running for president, I hope I would not vote for that person. But the truth of the matter is, I can still trust God. Because if even if Samson gets to be the leader, God's plan will win. And no matter what happens in the next couple of days, weeks, months, however long it takes us to figure this thing out, I want to give you one piece of advice. If you haven't, I think you should vote your conscience, but trust God's plan. His plan is going to win. And so our hope, our hope is that God's plan will always shine in this world. And that I will be communicating with people who love God's plan and want God's plan to win. It just so happens that sometimes, as we notice in Scripture, God's plan is to bring an oppressor, to bring an oppressive Savior, and to not have that Savior actually save anyone from anything because the oppression is still going on. Sometimes that's God's plan. And so underneath this plan, I still pray that God's name rises to the top, that Jesus gets glorified, that people fall in love with the only true Savior, and that one of these days, his kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. Because until that day comes, all the rest of this is just a mess. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. 
and his plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.